Thanks for joining us here on the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Kendall Kearns, and I'm the student worship leader here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're diving into the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark as our sermon series, Masterclass, continues. Jesus calls us to follow his example of service to others. Jesus tells James and John that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If our God lives a life in service to others, so should we. Now let's hear today's teaching about how we can live out this call to serve. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here today. This marks the 10th week of our masterclass series through the book of Mark. And the reason I know it's the 10th week through our masterclass series in the book of Mark is because we're on Mark 10. And we've literally taken one chapter per week kind of going through this incredible book. And so we've got six more left this summer. And I'm excited to see the things that God might show us today and what it means ultimately to be his. Hey, Connect staff, we're really glad that you guys are here. I'm really also very glad that you're so easy to identify. Um, that we, like, I, I love a dress code, and so I think we're going to start this at church, and it's going to be awesome. Um, they have been incredible all week long, serving down at our Franklin campus with all of the day camp kids, including my son. Thank you for that. He's coming at you for another week, so be blessed. It's going to be awesome. We are excited about what this word says to us today. If you are somebody who's read a book to a child in the last 20 years, um, this phrase is not going to be unfamiliar to you. Brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? And then I see a whatever that animal is looking at me. Well, there's, there's many iterations of this book, and, and the favorite one of mine that I read multiple times to our children growing up started out with the idea of panda bear. So it was panda bear, panda bear, what do you see? And then he responded, I see a bald eagle looking at me. And I don't know at what, what continent a bald eagle is staring at a panda bear, but apparently it's possible because this beautifully illustrated book told me so. Bald eagle, bald eagle, what do you see? I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, oh, I see a water buffalo looking at me. And then the water buffalo sees a spider monkey, and the spider monkey sees a green sea turtle, and the green sea turtle sees a macaroni penguin. And I did not know when I was reading this book to my children, there, there actually is a thing called a macaroni penguin. And he does have these crazy yellow feathers coming out of the top of his head. It's not named after Kraft. Like, it's not macaroni and cheese at all. It's literally like Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. That wasn't named after the popular side dish either. Um, it was literally out of the idea of these yellow feathers being called in that kind of English, the idea of macaroni. And so that's where that penguin gets his name. It's rather interesting. What did he see? He saw a sea lion. Um, and the sea lion saw a red wolf, and the red wolf saw a whooping crane, and the whooping crane saw a black panther, and the black panther, now this is when you get to the end of the story, not Marvel, although y'all, those movies are so good, no, the black panther saw a dreaming child, and the dreaming child, dreaming child, what did you see? They would literally list all of the animals that they had seen, and in this particular book, they all responded with the idea of seeing all of these animals. This one said, all wild and free. 
Like the dreaming child, so all of those animals from the very beginning of the book with the panda bear all the way down to the black panther, all wild and free. And you'll notice that this particular one had something in common that the other books in the series did not. All of those animals are endangered. All of them are, are, are endangered out in the wild, and so there's an effort to conserve and to protect. And so when the dreaming child, dreaming child saw all of the list of animals, the projection was, what if they were protected? What if they were wild and free? What do you see? And, and you ask yourself that question, and it's, it's, it's a picture of spirituality that goes far beyond your lenses and your prescription and your ability to see things that are really, really, really far away or your ability to see things that are really, really, really up close. I struggle with both, by the way. It's an age thing. It's, it goes far beyond your ability to see, but also your ability to understand. Jesus used a lot of illustrations for sight when he talked about people. He said, though seeing, in Matthew chapter 13, though they can see just fine, though seeing, they do not see. He meant that they didn't understand the kingdom of God. They didn't understand why he had come. They didn't understand what it meant. To the, to the Pharisees, the, the ruling class of religious elites that literally contradicted and conflicted with Jesus at every single turn to them in Matthew chapter 23, he calls them blind guides. Literally, I don't know if this is where the expression the blind leading the blind came from in modern day interpretations, but it would be a really good opportunity because what it means is the idea of someone who can't see being the person who leads you the way to go. And that's a metaphor for what they were doing, not understanding themselves who God was. They were the people who were responsible for leading people to understand God. And so as we pick up in Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1, but not without going to verse 51, because towards the end of the chapter, there's a story of Jesus encountering yet another person who was blind, blind Bartimaeus. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 51, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus responded and said, Rabbi, I want to see. And we're going to start out this morning making that our prayer together. God, we do want to see. We want to see and perceive and understand better than we do right now. At the end of this morning, at the end of this day, throughout our lives, we want to see. We want to see more clearly who you are. We want to see more clearly what your word says, and we want to understand, God, only by your power and only by your grace and only by your gift. We want to understand what it means and how you've called us to live. We want to see you, Jesus. It's in your holy and precious perfect name that we pray. Amen. So in Mark chapter 9, we left Jesus giving his disciples this understanding of the gospel, of being the people who got out of the way so that others could see. There was this whole concept of like, don't cause another person to stumble. On their way to believing in God, on their way to trusting Jesus, don't get in the way and be the thing that causes them to not trust, to not believe, to disbelieve. And we have that problem personified in the life of the church where people are looking at us and to us for a way to see God and yet so many times we're in the way of them actually seeing the grace and the truth and the love of Jesus and as that chapter concludes and chapter 10 begins it says Jesus left that place and he went into the region of Judea across from the Jordan again like always crowds of people came to him and as was his custom he taught them and then some Pharisees some Pharisees, the people that are always coming in with an accusation, always coming in with an opportunity, are seizing the moment. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus responded as he often did with a question. Well, what did Moses command you? He replied. 
they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You can kind of bookmark that verse in your Bible and understand that this was not a question that was asked about women at all. That this was not a, an equality type of question. There was like, is a man allowed to divorce his wife? And to divorce his wife was not simply to dissolve the marriage. It was literally to put her out on her own to not take care of her in the covenant way that you had promised to take care of her any longer. And because the system of patriarchy that they lived in was so pervasive, it literally would have left her homeless and poor and destitute and struggling. So are we allowed to do that to our wives? Like, can we just get rid of them if we want to? And Jesus responded, okay, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's so obvious in this moment that he wanted to know what Moses had given to those people because they looked to Moses at the end all be all of what they were doing in faith. They were legalists to the core. And so the idea was, what did Moses say would have been their primary? Jesus didn't just go backwards to Abraham and say, what did Father Abraham say? He went all the way to the beginning of the garden and said, well, that's great that Moses said this. He did that because you were mean and your hearts were hard. But what does God say? He gave them a picture not of what is allowed in terms of divorce, but what is blessed in terms of marriage. He says you're focusing on the wrong thing. Are, are you focusing on the fragility of what man can break or the autonomy of what he is allowed to undo or the beauty and the power of what only God can perform? The church historically has landed on the idea of Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. Some translations read, God hates divorce. If you go back to a more literal translation of the verse, it's alternatively, if a man hates his wife. What matters here is not so much how divorce is wrong or how we hate this. Ultimately, it's how much do we love God and how much do we love the blessings that he has provided. So many passages have been used in a really unfortunate way to perpetuate violence in the world, particularly against women, and in so many cases have given men just this carte blanche free pass when it comes to adultery. Jesus is not landing on any of that but focusing on the goodness of what marriage can be. In the first century, divorce was not about the dissolution of a contract or vows. It was when men ruled women to the degree that they were often left and abused. And instead of that, he highlighted the goodness of what marriage should have been. And in doing so, Jesus did more for women than anybody else was doing in antiquity. He was focusing on what mattered and ultimately what was good. There's a difference. There's a big difference. It's in your notes this morning if you're a person that can only pay attention if you're writing things down along the way. There's a big difference in the world between identifying what's wrong. We like to do that. Like, I love to call people out. Like, I can, I can identify what's wrong. It's like a spiritual gift. Like, I can, I can tell you what's wrong. But there's a difference between identifying what's wrong and elevating what's right. Elevating what's right. The Pharisees came and asked, hey, is it legal? Is it lawful? Something can be lawful without being loving. And Jesus took them right back to the beginning and say, hey, this is how you honor people. 
this is how you take care of one another. And I'm not naive to think that the idea of divorce hasn't touched literally every single person in this room, whether it's something that you yourself have gone through or something that you have seen your own parents or family members weather. And there is difficulty along the way. And I just want it to be clear that from the very beginning, Genesis all the way through Revelation, this scripture teaches an ethic of God being God and loving people. And so if that's something that is part of your story and part of your history or even part of your present, I want to say that God loves. And that whenever the church leans in to focus on what's wrong more than we elevate the good gifts that God has given us in terms of what's right, we fail. Because without a proper view of the latter, the things that are right, we will always confuse the former, the things that are wrong. A really high view of God means a high view of the covenant of marriage, even when in our humanity marriages fail. The reason we get so much wrong, really, really wrong, is not because we're arguing about what those wrong things are, but because we're forgetting the good things of God that he has provided and the ways that marriage, when it's right, should paint a picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us. The story continues with another opportunity in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 13. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And, and that's literally, some of your Bible translations are going to say, for people, for Jesus to touch those children. That word touch in the Greek language carries a lot of responsibilities for us. It's not only the word touch as in to place your hands on, it's also the word for light on fire. And I can promise you that in this context, it's translated correctly because people were not bringing their children to Jesus for him to light them on fire. That was not the context of what was happening in this moment. They wanted their children to be blessed. And one chapter over, he had literally taken a child and put him in the middle of the disciples and said, hey, you want to talk about the kingdom of heaven? Whoever welcomes this little one welcomes Jesus. And not only welcomes Jesus, but the one who sent Jesus. He had elevated the idea of being a child in the kingdom of God to a real prominent position, and now all these people are bringing their children, and what did the disciples do? They rebuke them. It's right in verse 13. People were bringing little children for Jesus to light them up. No, not to light them on fire, but to touch them and to place their hands on him, but the disciples rebuked them. That's literally the opposite of welcoming the children, thereby welcoming Jesus, thereby welcoming God. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, probably indignant because he was like, dudes, I just told you better. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He's like, hey, parents, I'm going to bless your children in just a minute, but let me go ahead and direct this word to my disciples to remind them what it really means to be someone who inherits the kingdom of God. He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, like one of these guys, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Y'all, even when, even when we've seen, even when we've heard, even when Jesus took a little child and put it right in our midst and told us that if we welcomed the little child, we were really welcoming Jesus, and if we were really welcoming Jesus, then we were really welcoming God the Father on high. Like, even when Jesus had just said that, when you and I have seen and when we've heard, when we've experienced Christ's word, it is still so very hard to be culturally swayed. 
And that's happening literally all over our world right now, literally all over our nation right now. Like we can see Jesus, we can hear Jesus, we can experience Jesus, we can understand our call as believers in Jesus, and yet it is still so likely, so easy to be pulled up in a sway of culture and be worried about the world falling apart and be worried about our rights being stricken and be worried about all the things that we don't have to worry about because he literally wins in the end. All we have to do is the one job that we've been given, which is to love others sacrificially, to be willing to lose everything so that people can trust God and come to faith. Remember Mark 9, 37? If you welcome a little child, you welcome Jesus. And yet the disciples, swayed in the moment, missing the point, are rejecting the people that Jesus told them to welcome. We know, and, and it would be really remiss not to mention, like what rock would I be living under if I didn't say that this is a historic week in our nation with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, and without being political, I, I think I can pretty clearly point us back to the fact that we are called to live out an ethic of love, which includes blessing children, but also protecting women. And these two passages of scripture in order for us in Mark 10 provide us a case for both. And while the decision this week does not limit or eliminate someone's access to abortion, and ultimately what it does is only release things back to legislatures, it's the Supreme Court saying this is not a judicial matter, this is a legislative one. And what I want to stand on the rooftops and say is this, there will be well-meaning, Christ-honoring Christians who land hard and fast on both sides of a political argument regarding this issue. But what we cannot do is land on opposite sides of a biblical argument regarding this issue. Because our job, the one job we have, is to love, is to provide, is to care, ultimately is to sacrifice. It is a nuanced decision, but our role is to levy faith in everyday life so that people can see how good God is. I want you to take comfort, if this week has been hard for you in any way, that God did not get more powerful on Friday than he already was, because he had never lost power to begin with. He didn't win in a new way on Friday that he had not already won, because he has and always will win. The church was not provided with an opportunity that we did not have before because the opportunity and the instruction has always been clear to live a life of love so that other people can see, get out of the way, so that people can see Jesus. In verse 17, he started on his way. It's really good here. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit like, he'd probably already inherited a lot. We're going to find out how rich he was in a second. But, like, what must I do to inherit? Notice that word. Inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds, like he always did with a question, Why do you call me good? 
no one is good except God alone. And this would have been a great opportunity for the dude to just butt in in that moment and say, yeah, but see, I believe that you are God, that you are Messiah, that you are the chosen one, that you are who God sent to us. And so naturally I can call you good too. He had an opportunity in this moment to illustrate his faith in Jesus as savior, but Jesus kept going and said, well, you know the commandments, back to Moses, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, let me stop you right there. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. The the word lack in in the Greek language is the word hysterio, not hysteria, although I'm sometimes hysterical. It's hysterio, and it literally means to be behind, to come late, to be inferior, to fail, to suffer. Jesus says, go, sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, treasure, inheritance. Then come. Follow me. And at this, the man's face fell sad because he had great wealth. I bet this guy had never experienced hysteria before. I bet he had never been behind. I bet he had never felt inferior. I bet he had never been late, although he probably was late from time to time, but there was always someone to pick up the pieces of his life and to make it so that he was successful in the moment. I guarantee that he was somebody who had never failed and somebody in his cultural context who had never experienced real suffering. And Jesus says, one thing that you lack, one thing that puts you behind, one thing that makes you fail at your quest for eternal life is this. You need to go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And he was sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around at that moment and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. And then Jesus said again, remember those children that y'all were trying to kick out a minute ago? Listen to this. Children, you're those children. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Really for anybody. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And scholars and theologians have tried all sorts of ways to get this verse to make sense in some capacity, identifying some gate in the east part of Jerusalem. Oh, that was the gate that was like a a, a, a euphemism for the eye of a needle and a camel can't fit through it because it's a really narrow gate. The camel had to go through the really wide gate because camels are really big, kind of rude and gross animals. Like in general, the camel can't fit through the small gate. No, that's not the picture at all. He wasn't painting a picture of some that would be hard or difficult. He was painting a picture of what was impossible. He literally looked at them in verse 27 and said, with man, this is impossible. Like with us, there literally is no possible way, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, hey, taking Jesus quite literally in this moment. Well, we left everything to follow you. And truly I said, tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will also fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come. Like you're going to get a whole lot of blessings and some difficulty along the way, but even better in the age to come because you get eternal life. And then he throws in there, but many who are first will be last. The guy who was never late, the guy who never failed, the guy who never suffered, the first place guy, the one who went away sad, he's going to the back of the line. And everybody who struggled along the way and has somehow found a way to put faith in Christ, they get to be first. There's a difference between focusing on what you lack and what you stand to lose. 
The guy comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. Hey, I've got everything in my life covered, self-sufficiency to the core. There's one thing that I lack, and that's complete and total assurance that when I leave this life, I'm going to get to a place of prominence in the next one, Jesus. Like, how can I be sure that eternal life will be mine? And Jesus looked into his heart, loved him dearly, and knew the thing that he was hanging on to more than anything else and says, you need to go sell everything. And what it indicated in the life of the man is that what he had in this life to him was more important and more valuable than what Jesus offered in the next. His values were out of proportion. He somehow believed that what he had now was too good to lose. It mattered more than what he stood to gain by following Jesus. The Jews thought that eternal life could be attained by giving alms to the poor, and so this would have been a really natural segue into the life of the guy. Like, hey, if I just give stuff to poor people, then all of a sudden I'm going to earn eternal life, and what Jesus is saying is that nobody, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you lose, can get eternal life. It's really only by faith in Christ, and the reason we know he didn't have faith in Christ, because if he really understood who Jesus was and why he came and why it mattered in that moment, there is nothing that he wouldn't be willing. Nothing would have been required but there's nothing that he would not have been willing to lay down for the surpassing worth of knowing and following and living for all eternity with Jesus. If he really knew who Jesus was and the, the life that only Jesus brought, he would have loved the poor more than himself, and he would have loved helping more than having the story continues because even when Jesus shows us the way, it's possible. It's easy for us to be really pridefully, completely unaware. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in verse 35, they came to him, teacher. They didn't call him good teacher because they had already heard the way the man rebuked, was rebuked by Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Y'all, that is akin to my children coming to me and say, Daddy, I have a question for you. Will you say yes? I'm like, well, I'm going to need to know what the question is first. Like, Daddy, 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 if, if we say this, will you promise to say yes? Well, I mean, uh, it depends on what it is. Like, the, the disciples are literally, James and John, coming to Jesus and say, we want you to say yes to whatever we ask next. And Jesus, without making any promises, says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. We want a place of power. We want, a, like he had literally already told them that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What are these guys doing coming up to Jesus so pridefully unaware in this moment, trying to get their position of authority in life, trying to create a, 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 an organizational chart or a hierarchy in the offices of heaven that they would have somehow been at a place of prominence in life. And, and so Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? It's a cup of suffering. Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. It is a baptism of trial and fire. 
And they're still so pridefully unaware. We can. Yep, we can. Absolutely. I'm there. It's like when you go to a job interview and you have your resume. If they ask you if you know how to do something, just say yes. Like, yes. Like, oh, absolutely. And then go home and Google it and learn it. Like, that's the goal in this moment. And I'm looking at that organizational chart of heaven. And this is literally, like, we're okay with God the Father being in complete and total sovereign control in all of heaven. And Jesus, we know that you're his son. You're going to sit at his right hand. And that's going to be awesome. And so there's, there's God. There's Jesus. We don't quite know what to do with the Holy Spirit yet because he hadn't come and they were wildly confused about that. So we're just going to leave him out of this chart for the time being. It's going to go God, Jesus, James, and John. (laughs) And y'all, I sometimes am okay if God in his sovereignty wants to put me in charge of a lot of things too. Like it can be like God, Jesus, I know a little bit better so we can put the Holy Spirit there. Like I'm even okay if like Peter and Paul want to be in that position of authority, but then Nick Allen, like over in charge of everybody else. Like that would be a scenario that I could get on board with in a moment where Jesus has literally just breathed the words, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. These guys are signing up for a position of power and a position of authority. I've been reading a book by a pastor out in Portland, the Pacific Northwest. His name is John Mark Comer. He's written several books, and they're all really good, but this one's my favorite one. It's called Live No Lies. And and it's literally about where our sin comes from in life. And you're like, well, I know where our sin comes from in life. She made me do it. Oh, that's where we started in the garden. No, I know where sin, there's sin literally three places. We've got the enemy who tempts us, and he's real like tempting us and and, and twisting God's words to get us to live according to his will rather than God's will. We've got the world around us, and it's, it's easy to blame the world. It's easy to blame popular culture. It's easy to narrow down on say, well, the devil made me do it, or popular culture is just so crazy, I couldn't help it. But then the third one is your own flesh. And the fact that just inside of us lives a heart of selfish desire. Can I sit at your right? Susan, you can sit on the left. Like, we can literally be side by side with Jesus for all eternity, and he can somehow put us in charge of the rest of this kingdom. Like, what in the world? It's our sin, our flesh, our evil desires, our human nature that causes us to stumble, and when we stumble, we make other people all around us stumble. In chapter 9, Jesus told us, woe to you when you make somebody else stumble. It's better if you tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea, because that's a big deal. John Mark Comer, in the book, he writes this. Most people today, some people outside these walls, outside the church, outside of faith in Jesus Christ, most people today want nothing to do with faith in the public square. And the church, it's me and you, is seen as part of the problem and not the solution. And and maybe there was a day in this country, let's just take uh, America, maybe there was a day in in this country and in some generation, it certainly has not been our generation, and it certainly hasn't been for a much longer time than we're willing to admit. Maybe there was a day when the church was actually seen as part of the solution, and like, hey, if there's a problem in the world, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the church, because they're going to make things better in life. Like, if there's a problem, the church has the answer, and I don't quite understand the answer, but I know those people over there, they know something that we don't know, and they have something that we don't have, so we're going to go there. And we've seen these revival-type moments where the church has taken a position of not power and authority, but influence over the way that the world works. There was a day and age where that was probably the prevailing ethic, that the church was part of the solution. And for a long time, probably the bulk majority of our lives, the church has just been in this neutral playing field where we were not seen as the solution, but we weren't quite yet part of the problem. We've tipped that. 
We've gone beyond that now. And we have to recognize it, that the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age, in this post-Christian world, and particularly a post-Christian nation, we're literally sitting in a position where we're no longer seen as the solution, and we don't get a free pass because we're just in this neutral Switzerland part of the playing field. We're now viewed as part of the problem. And coming to Jesus... And saying, Jesus, if you'll just put me in charge of this, I can swing the pendulum back the other way. I can take care of, like, if, if we get enough people to, to vote our way and to lead our way and to, and to do things my way, I can, I can swing things back in your favor, Jesus, and all of a sudden, your church will prevail. We're, we're not going to get the solution ethic back through our social media, or through our ballot box, but by lovingly serving other people, by being willing to lose, by being willing to go second, by being willing to sacrifice it all. You can have perfect vision and be able to see everything that's in front of you and behind you and all around you and still be blind to what matters. Jesus said, not so with you. You get that? In verse 42, he literally says to them, hey, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Like, guys, you know people who are in positions of power and authority, not so with you. It's supposed to be the opposite. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of all. For even, like not even just you being a slave, even the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's not just passing a towel. That's not just giving out free food. That's not just handing somebody a leg up. But literally, he gave his life as a ransom for many. It's not just giving people bread. It's setting people free. And freedom was synonymous with sight. So do you see Do you see marriage as a covenant blessing? As a gift of God? Or do you see relationships in life as people who are supposed to serve your ends and meet your needs? How do you see? Because nobody's going to meet your needs that way, I promise. And you're going to be left wanting. And we're going to see dissolute. It's not about what we dissolve. It's what we see that Christ has given. Do you see people as valuable? And not just some people, but all people. And children were a metaphor for a lot of different types of people in this moment. Do you see the least, the last, the lot? Do you see the people on the lowest stem of society as of inherent value in life? Do you see the present as a picture as a foretaste of what eternity can be. Do you see eternity as so much better than what you currently have, or does what you look at right now seem to matter in some ways more? And do you see losing as really the only way to win? Are are you reconciled with the point that 
knowing God is not about your way and getting your way and having your way because that's not the best way. So at the conclusion of the chapter, they came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, because there was always a crowd, they were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, Bar means son, Timaeus is a dude, so the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. We don't get it. Like, you can't go to Jesus. Who do you think you are? They rebuked him and, and told him to be quiet. They were standing in the way. But he shouted all the more. Son of David, recognizing that this is the Savior, this is the Messiah, this is the one who came from the lineage of David who is going to free us, who is going to rescue us, who is going to heal us, who is going to lead us. Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So the people who had been rebuking him called to the blind man and said, oh, cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Jesus asked that question, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, and, and he followed Jesus along the road. Well, Jesus came to grant sight. He, he came to make it possible for you to see just after his 40-day temptation in the wilderness where the devil had walked him out and like literally tempted him with everything under the sun, Jesus comes back to Galilee, the home region that he grew up. He comes back to Nazareth, the hometown where he was raised. And in Luke chapter 4, it says he goes into the synagogue on um, the Sabbath day and he grabs the scroll from Isaiah and it's chapter 61 and he begins to read. And in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 18, it's chronicled for us. It says, he, and like Jesus is talking, God, like he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and says, like in front of your eyes this day, this passage of scripture, the one that Isaiah prophesied has been fulfilled. And that whole passage of scripture is all about the Levitical year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, the land was supposed to be returned. The slaves were supposed to be set free. And all the people were supposed to have unparalleled rest where they just got to honor and soak in how very good God is and how much he had given to them. He's literally saying this whole Jubilee thing that you've been waiting on, it's here because I'm gonna help you see and I'm gonna set you free and I'm gonna make wrong things right. Not in the way that you think I'm going to, but in a way that only I came to do. Panda bear, panda bear, what do you see? The idea of what we see is connected to whether or not we're free. Dreaming child, dreaming child, what do you see? See all those endangered, at risk, in need animals free. It's connected to the fact that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. To see is to be set free. And I think Jesus asks us today the same question that he posed in verse 36 and the same question that he posed in verse 51. And if he did, if he was literally standing in front of you today in a much better voice than I have and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Here's the litmus test. 
of whether or not we're free and whether or not we're his and whether or not we truly can see and understand this gospel good word. It's your answer. You see, if your answer, without just doing the Sunday school version or without just virtue signaling or without just trying to come up with something that will be socially acceptable to other people, if your answer, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? If your answer to that question is, I want to be in charge and I want to win and I want, to, I want things to go my way. I don't want to claim victory on Friday. I don't want to claim victory every day. And I want to be in charge. I want things to come and be set right. And I want those people to lose. And I want these people to win. And I want a place of authority. What do you want me to do for you? I want something good for me, Jesus. Or is it your answer about others? Is it about you making a sacrifice? Is it about you going last? Is it about seeing people the way that God sees them? Is it about loving people the way that God loves them? Is it about tipping the iceberg of influence back in our favor in the only way that we can by living an ethic of love to people who do not think that God loves them? Is it living an ethic of sacrifice to do not think that, who do not think that Jesus came for them? What do you want me to do for you? Elevate me or eliminate me? Just help me see. See the world. See people around me. See opportunities the way that you do. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you. Thank you for the chance to be in this place today. And for the opportunity that we have to open your word. And Jesus, we we. We claim today that in our flesh we desire to be important, we desire to win, we desire to lead. But we know according to your word, it's about how well we love and how much we're willing to lay down. And so Jesus, today I I pray that you would help us to see to see you better than we've ever seen you before and to love others bigger than we ever have before. To know that you have a plan and that you always win. Help us to trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray today. Amen. You've been listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.